The phrase separation of church and state is accurately referred to as the Establishment Clause. But what does this phrase even mean, and where did it originate? What or how has it changed uh, throughout the years? From a protection against a public tax to fund churches to the anti-Catholic hatred of a Supreme Court clansman, how does this doctrine impact the modern Supreme Court and tie into the raging political maelstrom of the present? Addressing the Establishment Clause, uh, why don't you first just take a moment to examine that phrase. Uh, so recognize the operative word here of establishment and consider it alongside the implied purpose and application noted by the meaning of the actual word. Uh, to establish is to create, construct, erect, or build. Uh, so the literal interpretation is that the state must not establish a government religion. Uh, this is a mainstay of many cultures from the uh, kind of the- theocratic uh, monopolies of Muslim caliphates uh, to the Church of England uh, throughout uh, the history of Europe and, and, and many other regions around the world. But like other kind of uh, older, more ancient elements of uh, government, the founders meant to reject any state involvement in creating Uh, or one might say establishing, a religion uh, that would impress or obligate American citizens to participate. Now, this very clear meaning uh, is events and the circumstances surrounding the rise of uh, the Establishment Clause. Uh, Not in the Constitution or Declaration, uh, but it's largely accredited to a single letter authored by Thomas Jefferson uh, when Uh, He was president of the United States. Now, this letter was a response to a a kind of criticism, uh, really more of a plea, uh, by the Danbury uh, Baptist denomination. And that denomination felt uh, like it was a persecuted minority. So a a passive from that letter, which, bear with me, because it was written (laughs) uh, as one would almost read a King James Bible. Uh, But it reads, Our ancient charter together with the law, made coincident therewith, were adopted as the basis of our government at the time of our revolution, and such had been our laws and usages, and such still are, that religion is considered as the first object of legislation, and therefore what religious privileges we enjoy, we enjoy as favors granted and not as enable rights, and these favors we receive at the expense of such degrading acknowledgments as are inconsistent with the rights of freemen. Uh, so what, what their principal complaint here is, is that their, their right to uh, their particular religion is not being respected as a natural right in the state constitution. Uh, and so they were att- essentially seeking Jefferson to intervene in some way uh, to try to establish their religion, uh, through the force of the state. Uh, Of course, Jefferson responded, and in this response he created the uh, separation of church and state, or rather popularized it. It had been a phrase uh, thrown about by other founders previously and afterwards. Uh, And curiously, uh, this phrase was left largely uh, unmolested until uh, the reign of FDR. 
But Jefferson responded, and he wrote back in part, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should, and he quotes here, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So Jefferson is very clear here, and he cites, of course, Article One of the Constitution. Uh, he's, there really isn't a lot of gray area. Uh, he references specifically the establishment of a religion, and that that was explicitly forbidden uh, through the Constitution. So as a matter between man and God, the state could in no form interfere with the practice of religion. He cites the uh, only actual reference made to religion in the Constitution, which is, of course, in Article 1. Uh, and just to read part of that, uh, Article 1 reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So even at this point, simply by viewing the letter, uh, one is pretty clearly uh, informed as to the purpose and intent of this doctrine. Uh, like so many other things, the language is quite clear, and really the confusion results uh, when uh, multiple kind of uh, biased interpretations confront one another uh, in the intellectual arena. But uh, to bolster and expand on the uh, position here, uh, we can just look a little further back. The first place that we can examine is the omitted portion of this letter. Uh, although it didn't uh, find its way into the final version, which was then sent to the church, uh, nonetheless kind of expands and clarifies really on earlier ideas pretty well. Uh, not unlike the omitted portion of the Declaration of Independence, for that matter. Uh, but the part of the letter that uh, was later uh, struck out in the final draft, uh, because Jefferson did spend a great deal of time crafting this letter and referring with other great statesmen uh, to try and toe the line as carefully as possible and be very clear on his meaning, but of course uh, future revisionists have uh, taken what they could and distorted that anyway. Uh, but the omitted portion reads, Congress thus inhibited from acts respecting religion, and the executive authorized only to execute their acts. I have refrained from prescribing even those occasional performances of devotion, practiced indeed by the executive of another nation as the legal head of its church. But, subject here, as religious exercises only to the voluntary regulations and discipline of each respective sect. So this portion, again, to reiterate, was not actually included in the final letter. But it does provide us with a bit more insights into Jefferson's mindset at the time. So he specifically mentions that uh, the president, the chief executive, uh, should not act as the figurehead of the, the church as well. Uh, so he rejected this tradition, as did all of the founders, uh, much in the same way they've rejected things like the divine, uh, divine right to rule, uh, and numerous other uh, elements that had uh, conducted human behavior for millennia. 
So they abandoned any notion of a central religious figurehead, uh, just as they rejected the notion of a king. So the separation of church and state that Jefferson describes is simply just that. Uh, it is the state would not establish a religion, nor would the president operate in a manner similar to the king of England, which is uh, implicit in that separation. So Jefferson's just reasserting in this letter, I am the chief executive, I am not the head priest. But it should be noted that Jefferson uh, considered religion to be uh, an element of natural rights, as did uh, essentially every natural rights theorist. And in that same letter to the Danbury Baptist, he notes that, and I quote, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore man to his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. And we'll address social duties here shortly. Uh, but we can also see uh, very close to the same time period, in fact, uh, another insight into Jefferson and his positions uh, on religion as well as other founders. Uh, so to explore a little further, uh, we're going to look at the 1786 Virginia Statute uh, for Establishing Religious Freedom, uh, considered by many to be the most eloquent and articulate defense of religion uh, ever authored. So he can stick that feather in his hat as well. And we can examine this uh, alongside its impacts also on Article 1. Uh, Jefferson did not author Article 1 of the Constitution, uh, but he deeply influenced uh, uh, James Madison, who was the chief architect. Uh, so actually starting in 1776, Jefferson had authored uh, this particular statute uh, and had pushed for its adoption, but that didn't actually occur until 1786. And what's uh, especially illustrative of these circumstances is that it became adopted because of another uh, resolution that had been pushed forward, uh, which this kind of 1784 resolution, uh, not unlike some uh, subsequent events, it sought to levy a tax on the public, and the revenues for that tax would only go to the church. Uh, a portion of that uh, resolution reads in part, uh, resolve, that is the opinion of this committee, that the people of this commonwealth, according to their respectful abilities, ought to pay a moderate tax or contribution annually for the support of the Christian religion or of some Christian church, denomination, or common or communion of Christians, or of some form of Christian worship. Uh, now, before going forward, I, th I think it, it would not be a provocative thing to say then uh, that we can use this act as a reflection of the letter. So Jefferson authored uh, the, the, the act, uh, the Virginia statute, and he authored the letter that triggered the separation of church and state doctrine. Uh, so obviously, then we can, especially since they were in the same <laughs> time period very closely, uh, it would not be a strange thing to claim that those two things are interrelated. So when this uh, resolution was put forward, it wanted to, as it clearly stated again, levy a tax on all people to fund only Christian churches. Uh, and so his 1786 statute... Uh, which defended religion, one might 
first think, well, how does that apply to this? Because this, this seems like the state is trying to operate on behalf of churches. And in a sense, yes. But uh, Jefferson, Madison, others quickly noted uh, that this was a, a violation then of the rights of both the religious aspect of things and also those uh, who were not involved in the Christian religion. So the 1786 statute reflects the importance of free speech and the free exercise of thought and how that ties in specifically with religion. Uh, again, this, this uh, particular act was very influential in subsequent uh, constitutional arrangements. So in part, uh, because the entire act is quite lengthy, although beautiful and should be read, uh, Jefferson writes that the Almighty God hath created the mind free. So all attempts to influence it by civil authorities, uh, through financial burdens or legal punishments, only, and again quoting again, uh, beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness and are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion. So, not surprisingly, of course, his arguments in this act uh, are those of free speech, natural rights theory, uh, and also an acknowledgement of the inherent fallibility of man, which Jefferson notes that this fallibility means that no statesman should assume a dominion over the faith of others. And he also says, quote, And because religious beliefs do not bear on citizens' civil rights, uh, restricting those beliefs would, and now quote begins, tends only to corrupt the principles of that very religion it is meant to encourage. And so wrapped up within this idea of uh, religion and speech and, and, and all these uh, wonderful things that would later coalesce into Article 1, uh, Jefferson also argues that overt acts against peace uh, and good order are the only opinions uh, or sorry, not even opinions, pardon me, uh, but the only uh, kind of trigger which the state should step in to restrict. Uh, so not even saying hurtful things here, but only, and his quote is, overt acts against peace and good order. And one of my uh, favorite quotes of all time, he says quite beautifully, that truth is great and will prevail if left to herself. Uh, of course, this is especially pertinent as well uh, in the present discourse uh, because of all the attempts to censor speech and all the calls uh, to revise the meaning of Article 1. And I think it's, it's rendered pretty clear here as well as we address uh, the separation of church and state, uh, which one cannot do without also addressing Article 1 and freedom of speech. Now, critically, uh, Jefferson acknowledges that these things in this act, by virtue of being an, an act of a legislature, can be uh, addressed, infringed, modified later on. But he also claims that any such infringements, though lawful, would still constitute an infringement of natural rights. So like Article 1, uh, Thomas Jefferson here illustrates this act is meant to protect religious institutions from the government, like all natural rights. It is not a guarantee of individuals from seeing a cross or the Ten Commandments or Quran or any other such religious symbols. Uh, it is not a freedom uh, to never hear a street preacher and so on and so forth. And <clears throat> all, those all those illustrations, of course, 
uh, are pertinent because nowhere in any of the language is there any protections provided against religion being practiced in the public square. So government cannot oppress or discriminate or otherwise infringe on the natural right to execute one's religion, provided that that does not interfere with the natural rights of others, which of course we understand as being a natural uh, part of the mutual obligations of natural rights theory. Uh, and Jefferson referred to the this kind of interference uh, as social duties. And so if you consider religion alongside natural rights theory, uh, then of course the freedom of exercising your religion uh, did not end with the state, but with the violation of natural rights of your fellow citizens. And we can get some additional kind of uh, clarification on these social duties, uh, looking at a uh, the father of the nation, George Washington. Uh, he commu was in communication with the uh, Quakers, and Quakers, of course, were pacifists. And pacifism, they argued, was an element of their religion, and thus that should exclude them from any potential uh, conscription or service in the armed forces. And Washington simply explained to them that the purpose of government and its rulers, those who are placed into power, uh, was to protect the persons and consciences of men from oppression. So men from oppression, uh, from the state, uh, and also to prevent it in others. Uh, but he's very clear that this protection does not extend uh, beyond the obligations enjoyed by all people in, an, in uh, under natural rights theory. In this case, it was the obligation to contribute to the national defense. Well, of course, this, this meant that the Quakers' uh, religious exemption, as far as their uh, chosen path of pacifism, um, did not overrule their obligation in a free society to contribute to the defense of that free society. Again, all within natural rights theory. It's also worth mentioning that John Adams, another founding father, he noted that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So it's pretty obvious that the country was not founded in a vacuum from religion, uh, nor was it intended to be a vacuum of religious morality uh, or some type of atheist secular utopia. Uh, there was never any notion of a godless government or a society or a desire to achieve such a society that the aims of government was to strip God out of every uh, public element. And really quite the opposite. So the, the, the now lauded concept of separating the church from the state, uh, it was largely left untouched and irrelevant uh, until the emergence of the leftist progressive judicial activist Hugo Black, uh, a man whose name shall live in infamy. Uh, Hugo Black was an atheist for much of his life. Uh, he expressed very, very open hostilities towards Catholics uh, in general. And of course, this, this was a natural consequence of him being a member of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, who throughout the uh, 20th century uh, really expanded uh, in the northern and the eastern regions away from simply anti-black racism uh, to include... Uh, anti-Catholicism as a hallmark of their uh, rather distasteful uh, ideology. So Hugo Black, uh, the Klansman uh, justice, if you will, uh, he was a 
key player, really, in transforming the entire Supreme Court back into the kind of uh, judicial activism and, and breaches of powers uh, that the court first employed primarily in the Dred Scott decision, that disastrous decision uh, that helped pave the way for the Civil War and, of course, uh, def- den- <laughs> denied citizenship to anyone who was black. So lest anyone uh, place too much of a messianic projection onto the Supreme Court, uh, there's a litany of similar decisions, that, uh, including uh, chemical castration and, uh, and euthanasia, that we can also uh, apply towards the court as kind of a contextual grain of salt, if you will. <clears throat> so in, uh, in Everson versus Board of Education, uh, that is where Black... Uh, not only highlighted his dislike for religion, uh, but also took the opportunity uh, to kind of reimagine, reshape, and revise uh, the Establishment Clause, much like progressives did most elements of law during this time and concepts of what rights are. And of course, Black, like many other uh, selective revisionists, uh, cites Jefferson as a cause enough to... um, take the metaphorical wall that separated church and state. Uh, And he twisted this phrase to mean a protection of people from religion, uh, which, of course, is quite different. Uh, So in this instance, uh, Black determined that any school that had any religious instruction must be excluded from any public funding. Uh, So this effectively erected a barrier that obstructed religious practice and expression. Now, according to Black and uh, fellow leftist progressive uh, Felix Frankfurter, uh, another infamous uh, activist, revisionist Supreme Court justice, uh, the public could be taxed to support secular institutions, but not ones that were equally educational and it had any kind of religious tint. Uh, His argument disfigured the traditional understanding of religion in the public sphere and of the Establishment Clause. Uh, Now, uh, through the lens provided by Klansman Black, uh, any action taken by any government, even displaying a religious figure, document, or event, say, uh, you know, think of your Christmas time, uh, Jesus displays and whatnot. Now, these were a constitutional violation if you were to have that in public areas. Uh, So, unlike Jefferson, who felt that no interference should be made against religious institutions by any civil institutions. Black determined just the opposite. Uh, And to this end, uh, Black and Frankfurter uh, routinely abused their judicial positions as activists and not as jurists. And this applies uh, directly into uh, the modern context. Uh, So just yesterday, June 21st, 2022, uh, the Supreme Court uh, reached a decision in the Carson versus Macon case, uh, and this position essentially overruled finally uh, Judge Black's anti anti religious clause, essentially. So, not actually unlike Everson, uh, public dollars were again in play, and in a system of school choice where the uh, public funds were meant to follow the student. Uh, So parents were told uh, that only secular schools, what they called non-sectarian schools, would qualify for the vouchers. And so again, you have this same emergent situation where you're taxed, the money that you are taxed is put into a fund, that fund is redistributed, 
to well, to yourself and others, but with restrictions. And those restrictions were predicated solely and exclusively on religious affiliation. So not only is this kind of philosophically absurd for something that uh, was marketed and championed as a school choice system, uh, but it's a very clear infringement on uh, religious liberty in the free exercise clause. And Chief Justice John Roberts recognized this. He, he wrote that Maine's non-sectarian requirement for its otherwise generally available tuition assistance payments violates the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. In short, the prohibition on status-based discrimination under the free exercise clause is not a permission to engage in use-based discrimination. So it's also worth mentioning that in this case, the defendants, uh, the ones who sought to exclude religious schools, uh, they could not cite any. <clears throat> excuse me, they could not cite any uh, constitutional defense. Uh, instead, they just vaguely kind of stuck with the idea that public education is both defined by inclusion and tolerance, and reflective of the diversity of our students and our communities. So they're hitting all the highlights, right? Inclusion, tolerance, diversity. Um, three buzzwords. Uh, of course, it's ironic to define yourself as being inclusive and tolerant and diverse when you exclude an entire group of individuals uh, based on their religious practices. So this decision, uh, beyond the <laughs> the sensationalist claims made that it's some infringement of, of imaginary rights against religion, it's actually a restoration or reestablishment of the historical understanding and purpose and application uh, noted by Thomas Jefferson and others. Uh, so this uh, is actually a return to Article I of the Constitution. And of course, uh, this was a fact that was ignored by Black and for nearly a century afterwards. Uh, but finally, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts recognized that the Article One of the Constitution actually uh, is applicable in this circumstance specifically. Uh, but the Hugo Black style of judicial activism is alive and well in the modern day. Uh, so Gunnar Myrdal's ongoing uh, legal contagion uh, continues. Uh, <clears throat> Justice Sonia Sotomayor described the decision as an attempt to, and I quote, dismantle the wall of separation between church and state, and she also claimed that today the court leads us to a place where separation of church and state becomes a constitutional violation. So more sensationalist, fiery rhetoric. It didn't neither of these things. Uh, but what she did not mention is that this imaginary wall that she's addressing was not was built by an anti-Catholic Ku Klux Klan member in Hugo Black. It wasn't the founders, the Constitution, Thomas Jefferson, or anything else. It was the judicial activism, the interpretation of Hugo Black is what she's arguing to defend, not the Constitution, not Article One, and not even the Establishment Clause. Uh, but like so many other arguments, they're trying to transfer that symbolic meaning or, or conflate uh, this uh, new conception of the wall, uh, which of course requires a complete reversal uh, of the facts. So to deny civil participation in the civil government to a group only because of their religious affiliation, uh, you don't get a much clearer example of a violation than that. But like the historical identity politics of the left, 
which you can, again, go all the way back to French Babufism or Leptigalianism, Calhounism of the Democratic Party, and, of course, the easy one, which is just uh, Marxism. Uh, Joseph Sotomayor, uh, she sees a specific class of people, in this case, a religious class, and that class should be excluded based on that religion. Well, again, pretty, uh, pretty clear uh, case. Uh, so I think at this point we can kind of take that idea and examine that alongside uh, all of the historical context that we've discussed and gone over. Uh, and I think it's pretty clear, actually it is clear, um, that Adams, Madison, and especially Thomas Jefferson uh, would find a great objection to Justice Sotomayor's claims. So often declared as some kind of shield or bulwark against any visual representation or any representation generally of religion, uh, the separation of church and state argument presented since the days of Klansman Black referred to his reconceptualization of an atheistic anti-Catholic state, uh, not the actual understanding. Uh, and again, we don't really even have to go to Thomas Jefferson. We can simply look at Article One. It's it's uh, it's it's not a you don't have to call Columbo to figure out how this uh, situation pans out here. So the Establishment Clause should be understood to be precisely that. Uh, it is an opposition to government-established religion uh, or the unification of the state with religion. Uh, and like so many other elements of American philosophy, it should be considered alongside natural rights theory in order to establish a proper understanding, uh, regardless of how that standing might have been altered uh, selectively by judicial courts. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review. The Shane Caraway Show is available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Red Circle, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, visit 1787project.com to learn more.